Good afternoon and welcome to the 181st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a visit from Philadelphia sanitation worker and essential worker advocate Terrell Hagler, also known as your fave trash man. Then I'll talk to Shlomo Angel, Roger Keel, and Jufwei Ren about the importance of metropolitan regions in the response to COVID-19. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a guest for a future COVID Calls episode. As of today, December 4th, 2020, there are 1,512,846 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 14,218,080 cases reported in the United States. There are now a total of 277,412 deaths reported in the United States. That's up from 274,648 reported yesterday. Staggering numbers of deaths day to day at this point. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Ricardo Valderrama, noted anthropologist and mayor in Peru, dies at 75. This was written by Mitra Taj and was published in the New York Times September 17th. Before becoming the mayor of Cusco and its surroundings, an area of more than 1.2 million people in Peru and the historic capital of the Incan Empire, Ricardo Valderrama had spent four decades studying indigenous life in the Peruvian Andes. He recorded love songs in ancient villages and profiled bandits in the highlands. He wrote dozens of books and articles on everything from peasant uprisings to the collective trauma of colonization. But it was his first book, published in 1977 and written, like nearly all his work, with his wife, the anthropologist Carmen Escalante, that became an instant classic of Andean literature. Gregorio Condori Mamani, an autobiography published in seven editions and translated into at least nine languages, tells the story of a Quechua-speaking laborer whom Mr. Valderrama had befriended in Cusco. It follows him from his experiences as an orphan, forced to wander the Andes through his stints as a soldier, prisoner, shepherd, and factory worker. A shorter section recounts the life of his wife, a fellow migrant from the highlands who lived with him in a shack on the outskirts of Cusco. The book was milestone. The book was a milestone in Peruvian anthropology, said Cesar Aguilar, an anthropologist at Peru's National University of San Marcos in Lima, because it broke with the field's focus on indigenous people as a means of understanding the rise of Incan civilization. Mr. Valderrama and Mrs. Escalante, by contrast, considered them on their own terms in the present providing rare first-hand accounts, rich in cultural and historical detail of people who occupied the bottom rung of Andean society. 
We wanted to draw attention to indigenous cultures that had been devalued and made vulnerable in the cities, Mrs. Escalante said in a phone interview. But the extent of suffering and the richness of their experiences were surprising. Mr. Valderrama found and told important stories from the Andes throughout his scholarly career, during which he experimented in film and photography. He turned to politics in 2006 when he ran for the city council to promote culture and the arts, Mrs. Escalante said. Mr. Valderrama died on August 30th at a hospital in Cusco. He was 75. Mrs. Escalante said the cause was COVID-19, which had been surging in Peru's southern Andes. Along with his wife, Mr. Valderrama is survived by three children, Gonzalo, Julian, and Carmen Valderrama, and five grandchildren. He had been in office as mayor only since December. His predecessor had been suspended over a fraud conviction, and Mr. Valderrama was in line to succeed him. He spent most of his time in office leading the province's response to the new coronavirus, visiting markets to implement social distancing measures, and overseeing the distribution of aid packages for poor residents. A 25-year-old former councilwoman, Romy Infantas, replaced him. Mr. Valderrama was born on April 3, 1945, in the Cusco region to Bonificia Fernandez and Roberto Valderrama. His father worked as a hydroelectric technician and later a bank teller. Both his parents were indigenous Quechua speakers. Raised in a middle-class family, Mr. Valderrama received a bachelor's degree from the National University of St. Anthony the Abbot in Cusco in 1976 and became a professor there in 1990. He learned Quechua from his grandmother, Mrs. Escalante said, and went on to speak it better than his eight siblings. Mr. Valderrama started dating Mrs. Escalante, a childhood acquaintance from San Geronimo, while he was a university student. He wooed her with books by feminist writers. They helped lead a generation of young anthropology students in shifting the field's focus to the pressing issues facing millions of indigenous people, Mr. Aguilar said. They realized indigenous people weren't just subjects of study. They were people struggling, he said. They treated them as equals, and that yielded some very rich and valuable testimony for social sciences. Okay, I'm gonna to turn to our conversation for today. I'm really happy to bring Terrell Hagler back. I'm gonna just introduce him to you. Terrell Hagler, also known as your fave trash man on Instagram, and I hope you are following him. Be sure to check out uh, his feed on Instagram. He's from North Philadelphia and started as a Philadelphia sanitation worker December 30th, 2019. Before that, he was a personal trainer. He's a graduate of Creative and Performing Arts High School in Philadelphia, and he attended Coppin State University in Baltimore. He is a really busy guy, and I'm glad he could make some time to visit today. Terrell, it's good to see you. Good to see you too, Scott. How you doing? doing okay. I was just pulling the numbers here before we talked, and we talked on Labor Day. Mm -hmm. And on that day, back in September, there were 189,095 deaths. It's almost impossible for me to believe. It wasn't even that long ago, and now we're up to 277. I hope you've been doing okay. I have. I have. Uh, by the grace of God, I've been COVID-free my, and my family as well. So we'll, we'll keep on trucking and being safe. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I um, wondered, just sort of broad question, how are your colleagues, your work colleagues, holding up at this time? How are you holding up? One of the things we talked about last time that was so impressive to me and others who told me that they listened to the call was just your description of the work, even on a good day. And in COVID times, how much harder that's been. How's everybody doing? 
We, we are doing okay. Um, since our call, we haven't really had any trash delays since September. So my coworkers are showing up. We're getting the trash up. We're getting it in the truck. Um, we've, been, we've been really working. There has been some days when we're going 7 p.m., 8 p.m., 9 p.m. to make sure that the day gets picked up. But um, we're staying safe. We're cleaning the trucks. We're wearing our masks. We're social distancing as much as possible. And we're actually doing okay. Um, but the city is, is still clean a little bit. <laughs> and the trash is still getting picked up on time. So um, we're, we're trucking along, as we say. We're trucking. And, you know... People who've been following you like I have, you know, we know you were very busy with media also over the summer. I mean, you were became a national spokesman for essential workers over the summer. Are you still doing that? Are you still on interviews and in media a lot talking about what it's like? Um, yes and no. Not as much as the summer, but there are still some opportunities here and there and um, like I told you in September, I take every opportunity to speak and to give my message. And, you know, you never know who's listening and no platform is too big and no platform is too small to hear my story, to hear the story of sanitation workers here in Philly. Um, I've done some speaking at colleges, uh, Rosemont College to be one. So awesome. that, that's another thing. Um an avenue that I'm trying to get into. I've done a few food drives um, for mm -hmm. the community since we last talked. I've done two. My first food drive, we fed 1,500 families um, wow. over 10. And the one I just did before Thanksgiving, um, roughly around 12,000 pounds of food was given away wow. at Malcolm X Park in West Philly. So um, I'm shifting into really trying to take care of the community, take care of essential workers everywhere, and just trying to bring Philadelphia together. Because someone said that bad things happen in Philly, so I want to prove them wrong. Yeah, you know, I, exactly. Someone said. We, we forget <laughs> about that. I am so impressed. Well, you're keeping very busy. Those food drives are, are no joke, and right now people really need it. Yeah, that's what that's what got me interested. My church does them all the time, so I kind of jumped in and I've made some friends. Um, I share access, uh, Philly Food Works, sharing with friends, a lot of the distribution places, and using my platform to let people know that they're available and bring out the masses. And we're, we're just, I, I started another hashtag when I do the food drives is hashtag Feed Philly. And that's all I want to do. It's just, you know, with everything going on with COVID, the last thing I want somebody to worry about is whether or not they can feed their family or not. So that's something I can help with. For sure, I'm going to do I remember when we talked back in um, September, you had some very specific, in fact, we talked, you were on your um, way to do some rallies and some advocacy at that time. Bring us up to date. If you don't mind, maybe remind us some of the specific things that sanitation workers have been asking for from the city, from the state, and what what's the status of those? I mean, I know issues around access to PPE, for example, designation of sanitation workers as essential workers. Fill us in on how things are going and the struggle for that. Um, slowly but surely, uh, if I had to fit it into uh, a comment, um, I, I have uh, connected with some state reps who have, have, say, who have shown interest in 
establish us, establishing us as essential workers, um, offering help to get PPE, offering help to get hazardous pay. Um, so that's where we are right now. We're kind of, we're, we're moving and grooving. I'm learning a lot about politics and how things work and, you know, how, you know, you, you pick up speed and then it slows down and you pick up speed and it slows down. So um, as of right now, though, we are still, we're still deemed essential. We still have to work. Um, we still don't have hazardous pay. And I think the last time the city gave out PPE was maybe early October, end of September. So, but through the efforts and the help of the Philadelphia public, I was able to purchase um, a plethora of masks, a plethora of cleaning supplies. I did the Kelly Clarkson show. She sent over some masks and some money to buy more stuff. Um, and right now I have a, another t-shirt campaign. Well, I should say merch campaign. We are raising money to buy commercial sanitizing guns. Um, to prepare for the second wave, I've noticed that outbreaks that have been at, san at some of the sanitation yards have been in the office or, like you know, in the common areas. Mm -hmm. You know, they're getting clean, but these per these commercial sanitizing guns would be able to be used. They shoot about eighteen feet, and you literally sanitize a whole room in minutes. Okay, so you you can also use them on the truck. Um, and they're about, about 1500 a pop. So, okay. um, I'm trying to buy two for each yard. And how many yards is that? It's six, it's six yards. Okay. So I, I want to buy two for each yard and then I want to restock on some cleaning supplies because it went like hotcakes. <laughs> yeah. So, I, the merchandise is amazing. And, uh, I want to make sure everybody knows to find your Instagram page, instagram.com slash underscore your fave trash man and you can find it there i'll be sure to put that up on you can go to your fave trash man.com slash shop okay well that's, that, that's even better yeah that takes you right to it yeah uh, and that's the um long there's a long sleeve shirt on there i bought one of those t-shirts that was yeah. awesome the goal is to have 200 orders of each item. So I want to have 200 orders of the tea, 200 orders of the uh, long uh, of the hoodie, 200 masks, 200 orders of the um, of the uh, window sign. Just if we could get 200 orders um, of each item, I think we'll be good. So tell me a little bit more about. So you, you're trying to raise money for the sanitizing guns, and then. Um, some of the other things that that people might be needing at this time. When we talked last time, we were talking about gloves. We were talking about all kinds of things that you, um, you know, are just really pressing needs right now, so you can do your work safely. Yeah. So uh, definitely puncture-proof gloves. Um, Milwaukee Tools came through last month and dropped off fifteen hundred pressure uh, puncture-proof gloves to me. So I was spreading them out around the yard. It's getting cold now, so if anyone feels in their heart to give out hand warmers to the sanitation crew so we can put them in our gloves and keep our hands warm as we work, those are big. Um, masks are always uh, a delight to get, um, puncture-proof gloves and snacks, bananas, peanut butter crackers, just things to keep us going 
throughout the ship are always appreciative and um, well, appreciated. And anything else, I always say anything that people's hearts desire, that, your sanitation crew is not picky. You will take anything. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, I was saying before we came on, we were talking a little bit, and, and sometimes when I see your posts on social media, I think, how's this guy going to do this? And you picture, you know, some people didn't pack the bags right, or there's a whole mm. street's worth of stuff to pick up. But the, the scariest thing seems to be, uh, for me, I mean, not only just worried about the exposures you were talking about, which can happen in the community, but also in the yard, but the needles. Yeah. And you just posted something today about um, needle collection boxes. Can you say a little bit more about that hazard and, and how you have to cope with it? Yeah. Um, well, in my area, if you're in Frankfurt, you know, they have the, um, the supervised puncture, uh, puncture uh, facility and the, um, it's just... It's really hard to pick up trash in that area when there are a lot of people using drugs or just throwing the needles away. Um, I told you before, I have like five coworkers who have been stuck by needles just picking up the trash. So one of my followers got a new job and she's moving and she has about 192 of those boxes. So she reached out to me and she said, hey, I know I saw your post. Do you want the boxes? And I'm like, yeah. Then I had a conversation with Department of Health, and we're working out how we can place those boxes in the best plate in the best spots in the city, so they can be used, and they can you know help prevent my coworkers, residents, kids. You know that's my main concern. Mm -hmm. Then my coworkers are kids playing in the street, and you fall and you fall on top of a needle. That's that's like the scariest thing to me. So um, we're in talks right now with the DOA to Philly to strategically place boxes where they're going to be best used and the DOH has said, you know, they'll come clean them out when they get full and everything. So I'm really excited. Um, this, I think this is a game changer in some of these neighborhoods where they can, you know, people have a place to just put the medical waste and not in their trash can and stuff. I, I think this is huge. I'm excited about it. Um, and I can't wait to just, you know, get into the neighborhoods. I've been asking followers, send me addresses where you think they can best be placed. And people have responded like crazy. So I'm just excited to get these boxes out here and work with the DOH affiliate to make this thing happen. It's, it's going to be big. I sometimes I think it's so hard to find um, silver linings and hope at this time, particularly as we move into this second wave. But I, I have to say, I was thinking about our previous conversation earlier today. You think it's fair to say you would be doing this kind of advocacy if it wasn't for COVID? I mean, it, it strikes me that this moment in time kind of brought you and many other people into this kind of work. And the the success you're having is going to go beyond COVID. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's an important thing to linger on, I think, for a second, don't you? Yeah, um, it's a, I get asked that a lot. And I say COVID was a microwave. So these issues have been in the crock pot for many a years, and we've just been slow cooking it and dealing with it. And I think when COVID hit, it switched to the microwave. It, it, it brought a light to it so fast. And people were like, oh, my gosh, how long have you guys been dealing with this? And, you know, some people are like 40 years. And you're like, why, why didn't anybody say anything? So I think it's perfect timing, stars aligning. 
Um, and I, I really think if it wasn't for COVID, we pro it probably wouldn't be as important and it probably wouldn't be as relevant. And it probably would take a little bit longer to gain some traction in the platform. But um, like you said, to find the silver lining, COVID, uh, 2020 has just been a year of real. It's real and transparency. COVID, COVID has, you know, brought things to the surface that people have been trying to hide for years or just didn't want to deal with. Um, and, and during COVID, there's nothing, nothing that, nothing can hide from COVID. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so your problems, your situation, your issues, things, you just have to deal with a lot. So I'm just happy to be a positive influencer with COVID going on and just to try to make people smile and laugh and feel like we're going to make it. And one of my teachers says it takes all of us. And I truly do believe it takes all of us. It's going to take all of us to get through COVID. It's going to take all of us to get sanitation workers hazardous pay. It's going to take all of us to get sanitation workers raises. It's, it's literally going to take the city, sanitation workers, the state for this to hit a national stage and for people to really understand how important sanitation workers are. Do you have some hope with the new Congress, the new president, that this issue of hazardous pay will be addressed? Or is that something that has to be fought out in the, in the city and in the state, in the governor's I, office? I think it starts with the city and the state, but Joe Biden owes me one, because I did a Joe Biden commercial. Oh, you did? I did. And I talked about him and the middleman and him working for unions and laborers and black America. So if Joe Biden sees this, he owes me one. <laughs> did a commercial for you, Joe Biden, that was shown in 17 different states. Uh, Georgia. Wow. Okay. I missed that. I got to go find that commercial. So you were talking. I send it to you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I do. I really do have faith. I have hope that, um, Come next year, come the city, getting out of the debt, come the state, recognizing how important sanitation workers are, that we could just get a seat at the table and start the conversation of how important sanitation workers are and why we deserve uh, huge pay raises and hazardous pay. Boy, I I can't wait to see that commercial. And and you're you're right, and um, he does, you know. January is, is coming and it's yeah. gonna be time to call in some of those yeah. some of those debts. Yeah, well, I'm excited. Yeah, uh, let, me, um, let me ask you about, so you're coming up on a year in this job. Yeah. So um, maybe for you, but for others, it's kind of a serious question, the, the fatigue. Uh, in an ordinary year, uh, particularly going into winter, I know the work you do is hard on your body, it's hard yeah. on your mind, it's constant problem solving, you're at risk every day, layering COVID in. I mean, you guys have been confronting this on the streets every day now for 10 months. How is the, how are people doing in that sense? How are they coping mentally? Are they able to get um, any time off? Yeah, we, well, I, I call them mental health days. You, you I, I think that should be a thing in the workforce. There's some times when you just need a day or two to not go crazy and to collect yourself and to just kind of reset your mind, reset your energy. I mean, physically, I know for me, I have a, a little secret that I, um, 
cryotherapy here in Philadelphia is a place called Cryo Philadelphia at 17th and Samson. Literally has been a, a savior to me, my body. Um, if anybody knows anything about cryotherapy, long story short, it's an ice bath on steroids. You hmm. you stand in a chamber, you stand in a chamber, and the temperature drops minus two fifty. And the what it does is it just helps your body recover. You know, uh, I'll give I'll let people look it up so they can. So I'll leave okay. it. But cryotherapy for anybody who works out, does sanitation, jogs, run, box, anything, cryotherapy literally saves my body. I, I do it at least four times a month. Um, really? And it's, it's a small little place, but it's so the customer service is amazing. Everyone there knows what they're doing. And it's been times when my legs have locked up on me and I'm from mm -hmm. walking. I'm still averaging about 25,000 steps a day. And I can go to cryotherapy, sit in the in the compression booths and get some Normatec. And that regulates the blood flow in your legs. Or I get in the chamber, or she has a UV sauna that kills corona at a certain temperature. Um, but she has a UV sauna that um, heats you from the inside out and you detox. And so you're sweating out 80% of toxins versus 80% of water. So uh, when it comes to my body and my recovery and my mind, literally uh, cryotherapy in uh, Philadelphia, cryo Philadelphia has been a lifesaver. Wow, that's amazing. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all that you've turned this into a science of how you were going to cope <laughs> with all of the with all of the wear and tear. Um, yeah. Would you mind, some, when we talked last time, you shared some stories about people in the community um, helping and kind of getting your back a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, anything, anything new on that front? Have you? Any oh man! Uh, the, since September, the outpour, the outpour has been amazing. I get DMs all the time. Um, a couple of my food drives, a couple of flowers just pulled up, opened the trunk, and, and pulled food out that they had just bought from Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and Aldi and something. Just said they wanted to give a little part of something. Just, just to help out and increase what we were giving out. Um, I have a lot of followers that have been giving to their crews, giving out uh, gloves and masks and water and um, just showing love. Um, like today, the follower that said she was moving and she didn't want to throw away the medical waste boxes. So right. she's donating those. Um, it's, the outpour has continuously been amazing from followers just jumping on board and really trying to show love to sanitation and really trying to affect change and be a part of the your fave trash man movement. It's been amazing. It is amazing. And I it's, you know, even since the last time we talked, one of the things that, that really struck me when we talked about uh, those earlier days of the pandemic is that, you know, for people who didn't have to go to work, mm -hmm. who were indoors, everything was so eerie and quiet. But sanitation workers and police and fire being out in the street, it, there was something calming and comforting about that. It let us know society is still working. You could still yeah. put the trash out and it it still took it. And then we kind of have, I won't say we got back to normal, but a lot more people are out and about. But we're heading back into a time, I'm afraid, where we're going to have be a lot more like it was mm -hmm. in May. And I guess what I want to say about that is it, 
you've played a role and your colleagues have played a role as far as I'm concerned at convincing us that society is not going to fall apart. And I think we're going to be looking to essential workers again. Yeah. In these coming months. It's a lot of pressure to put on you all. It is. And I don't think uh, being an essential worker is for the faint of heart. Literally, my coworkers and I, we get up every morning, we get, we see each other at the yard and we just say, you know, good luck today. Tough through, chuck through. If you need anything, call me. We're, we're there for each other because, I mean, the way you put it, you're right. Society is kind of leaning on us. If we don't get the trash, after two weeks, it's declared a health hazard in the city. So we, we, and we take pride in that. People, people should know that we take pride in keeping the city clean, keeping the, the threat of the disease down, and we want to see the trash up as much as the next person. So we're always going to come. We're always going to come get the trash. We may be a little late, maybe a day late, but we're coming. I say that all mm-hmm. the time. We're coming. And we take pride in it. And um, to, to get that waste up and off the street and for one day to look forward and see that kids are playing in the street with no mask. That's, that's, that keeps us going. That keeps us going. I know we're almost up on time and I know you have to run, but just real quick, what's your plans for the holidays? Uh, something quiet, small, you be with the kids, you know, watch Christmas movies, the whole, the whole, the little um, shebang. Um, I don't know if you know, uh, in November, uh, we lost my mother. A mother passed in no, on November 1st. Hmm. So um, it's been really hard. You know, and she was she was my biggest. She was my advocate. As, as much as I advocate for sanitation, she was my advocate, and she would repost everything. So, um, everything I do now, moving forward, is to honor her, honor her advocacy, honor her beliefs, because um, she saw a clean Philadelphia. She would say all the time, "I can't wait till you get Philadelphia to be considered the cleanest city in America." You know that, and she kept calling me the mayor. So we'll see which way I go. <laughs> well, I think that's probably not unreasonable. I'm so sorry for your Thank loss, you. Terrell. And um, yeah, yeah, Thank you're you. an inspiration, man. I try. I mean, I'm pulling on. I got the I got the thoroughest guardian angel now. I have no choice. I have no choice. Well, it's always great to talk to you, and I want everybody to go to yourfavetrashman.com/slash/merchandise/slash/shop. Wow. Shop. I'm going to say this again, yafiktrashman.com slash shop. And be sure to um, find something awesome there for the holidays and know that um, the spending you do there is going to go to help essential workers, sanitation workers in, in the city of Philadelphia. So um, Terrell Hagler, thanks a million. And I want to try to get you back in the new year. Um, have a great holidays. Take sure, care. You can stay, Scott. Have a good one. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, we're going to uh, shift over in the conversation now, and I have uh, some guests to bring up. And let me introduce them. I'm really excited for this conversation. Let me introduce you to Roger Keel. Roger is professor 
at the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University in Toronto. He's the author of Suburban Planet, which came out with Polity in 2018, and co-editor with Judy Branfman of Public Los Angeles, A Private City's Activist Futures, which came out with UGA Press this year. He's also co-editor with Fei Ren of The Globalizing Cities Reader, which came out with Rutledge 2017. That's a great book. And with K. Marat Guni and Marat Ukulu of Massive Suburbanization, which came out in 2019. Roger Keel is also doing ongoing comparative work with colleagues locally and internationally on the relationship of COVID-19 and cities. Another guest joining us today is Shlomo Angel, and please correct me on the pronunciation of that. Angel or yes. Angel, great. And I believe um, he goes by Solly. He's a professor of city planning and the director of the urban expansion program at the Marin Institute of Urban Management at New York University. He's the author of Planet of Cities, another essential book from 2012, and Housing Policy Matters from 2000. He's the leading author of the Atlas of Urban Expansion, and uh, which came out in 2016, and a pattern language, which appeared in 1977. Since 2012, he led teams assisting intermediate cities in Colombia and Ethiopia in preparing for their rapid expansion. And we are also joined by Jufei Ren, who's a professor of sociology and global urban studies at Michigan State University. Her research focuses on urban governance, architecture, and the built environment in comparative perspective. And her latest book is Governing the Urban in China and India, which came out this year with Princeton University Press. Shlomo, Roger, and Juve, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Um, and uh, great to have you follow uh, Terrell Hagler. I don't know if you got to hear any of the discussion with him. He's such a interesting and inspiring figure who's sort of taken on the uh, role of advocacy for essential workers in Philadelphia. And it's a perfect segue into our conversation. We're gonna talk about um, the importance of cities in the pandemic and the importance of thinking in terms of metropolitan regions and governance. And I, I guess I wanna start with you all the way that um, usually do just to find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is, is going there today. And um, Sally, do you mind if I start with you on that? Sure. Uh, I'm uh, calling from uh, New York City. Uh, the pandemic uh, has uh, been with us for a long time. It struck very hard at the beginning. And uh, we uh, hunkered down for a while, but then uh, we were the first to uh, get out of it in a way. So we're now in low-level pandemic. Uh, they are, we're more careful, I think, than people in the rest of the country. Uh, but because this is such a big place and such a varied place, it's, uh, in a, it's the largest metropolitan area in the US. It has, it covers four states, 22 counties, more than 400 municipalities. It's very difficult to govern. Uh, I'm, I was actually quite happy with the initiatives that uh, the governor uh, Cuomo took once he realized that this is a pandemic, which took everybody a long time. Uh, I think he educated us to be more careful to wear masks, to social distance uh, earlier on, and numbers came down. Uh, it was also nice to see in the summer 
the mushrooming of all these outdoor restaurants, which uh, gave us a feeling that New York still had a kind of a New York spirit. Uh, now these restaurants are slowly, you know, kind of shuttering. Even the outdoor ones look too enclosed to me. I, I don't dare use uh, many of them. Uh, but I think we're beginning to see the light at the end, at the end of the tunnel. That's what it feels like. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, and this experience of, of New York, as you pointed out, and we'll talk about today, uh, it's misleading even to use that term because it's been neighborhood by, by neighborhood. Uh, you know, if you look at the maps of the, of the outbreak and of course the impact on the health system, it shows us New York is not a monolith by any means. I was really impressed what you were just saying about the restaurants, the outdoor restaurants, which have now become enclosed. It's, it's interesting to look at those pictures and, and look at much older pictures of New York City when there was more informality of the streetscape. I don't know if that struck you at all, but it's, it's, it's really struck me how much improvisation there's been on the streetscape at this time. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, it really, the moment these things started to mushroom and the different designs and the different lighting systems and the vegetation and the colors, it really felt like the New York spirit is back. And, uh, and it, I think it lifted everybody's spirits. It was a wonderful change of atmosphere. Hmm. So let me bring Jufe in. And uh, you please correct me if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly, but I, I'd like to find out uh, where you're calling from also and what the pandemic situation is looking like there. Okay, um, so I'm calling today from Chicago. Um, I haven't checked the numbers recently, but I'm sure the numbers are very depressing. So Chicago has been one of the hotspots. Uh, I think the entire Midwest region has been a hotspot for a very long time. Uh, the hospitals are filled and I have personal friends who uh, um, got COVID and now are in uh, hospitals. Um, so I don't know the the big picture, but I can tell from just personal experience, you know, the situation is getting worse and probably we will see a bump, Thanksgiving bump in a, in a few days or probably uh, uh, one or two weeks. Um, but just like New York, Chicago is a very big city and the city is very segregated. So uh, I'm pretty sure that different types of neighborhoods have been hit differently. Uh, so I live in the South Side. Um, so uh, South Side Chicago is predominantly African-American. Um, and um, so my neighborhood is one of the hardest hit uh, neighborhoods in the city. Um, and Sally mentioned uh, about restaurants. So I, <laughs> I think I will <laughs> make a quick comment on that too. So in the last few months, I also ate several times in restaurants. And every time it's just so um, uh, joyful. And the food was not that great, but it, it's so <laughs> nice to see other people. <laughs> see people. Yeah. yeah. Communal experience. And every time we ate outside on the, like in the parking lot, uh, there's a tent and then people uh, eat under uh, the tent. 
but the weather is getting cold <laughs> in Chicago, mm -hmm. so I don't know how long <laughs> that uh, will last. Um, I think the big story here is segregation. Uh, just how, if you look at the zip codes, the wealthiest zip codes, uh, there are very few uh, COVID cases. But if you look at the poor um, Hispanic uh, African-American neighborhoods, the numbers are much, much higher. I think that's um, uh, a very clear pattern. Well, thank you for that. Roger, let's bring you in now. Just um, same question where you're calling from and, and how does it compare to what we're hearing out of New York City and out of Chicago? Well, I am in Toronto, and which is not in the United States, in Canada, but it is one of the four largest cities in North America, if we don't count Mexico City. And, um, you know, if we have LA in the count, then the, these are the four largest, largest cities. And uh, they are comparable, all those cities, in terms of their social disparities. And that also shows in Toronto, even though we have a much different political system in Canada, and we do have different... Um, monkeys on our back when it comes to questions of, uh, you know, racialization uh, and how we talk about that. Uh, we have a different way of talking about difference. We don't, uh, you know, talk about uh, race in the same way that the United States talks about race, uh, which has had uh, the consequence that for the first part of the um, uh, pandemic, there were actually no numbers on uh, the racialized nature of uh, of the, the, the impact of the disease, and then activists in public health, but also in society, particularly during the Black Lives Matter struggles in the summer, uh, made that an issue. And now the public health agencies are providing this data, and it shows, as it does in Chicago and in New York City, that the most affected neighborhoods in Toronto are neighborhoods where the visible minorities, as the Canadian uh, state calls it um, people of color um, are in the majority and uh, where poor people live and where precarious workers live where um, um, people live who have to take the bus to get to work and where people work in the service industries so this is a story much like uh, you know the stories in Chicago and New York what I would like to add um, is perhaps an, an experience which is so typical for also for the Canadian case which is uh, immigration, uh, Toronto, there was a, a, a posting today which I shared with my students and on Twitter about one, one of those rankings where Toronto is the second most exciting future global city, uh, uh, which is of course complete nonsense. But one of the reasons why Toronto is so exciting is because it is the fastest growing city in North America. Uh, mm -hmm. We have more cranes in the sky than Chicago and New York and LA. Uh, uh, there are, and this is all fueled by immigration, a little bit of migration from other parts of Canada, but most of it is, in, in, is, is immigration. And most of uh, the settlement of those immigrants who by a far majority come from non-European backgrounds, most of them from South Asia and East Asia, the majority of them move to the suburbs. And so the classical immigration pattern going into the center of the city and then mm. second generation moving out has long been broken in Toronto, which means that we have uh, majorities of non-white populations, majorities of immigrant populations 
uh, in our large suburban cities of 600,000, 800,000 people that surround Toronto. And here we find a lot of other hotspots. And there is a, 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 you know, and there is a conversation about uh, how we deal with this and how we even think about that. And, you know, I don't want to talk too long about this, but that is perhaps an, a an aspect of the Canadian or the Toronto situation. Uh, which is a little bit different from uh, some of the cases in Chicago and New York. Well, Roger, I'm going to stay with you here to start and then bring uh, your colleagues back in. Um, I was really looking forward to this conversation uh, because uh, I'm a fan of your work, but also uh, it's good to have the urbanists together. And as a person who studies urban history myself, I was really um, excited to see this work you're doing, and you had a workshop this week on why pandemics such as COVID-19 require a metropolitan response. Um, I'd like to talk about why you thought the workshop was necessary and introduce us to some of the big ideas. And then I know you took a sort of multi-city approach, so we're going to hear about Wuhan, we're going to hear about New York, maybe Paris and Johannesburg. So uh, orient us a little bit to this, if you will, Roger. Well, Solly and I, who had been previously in touch about some work on suburbanization, uh, communicated early in the summer when Solly was um, drafting papers on the New York situation. Because New York was, as he said, uh, one of the first cases uh, that were uh, affected by by the um, pandemic. And I had done some work in the past on SARS, which was a disease in 2003, which came also, uh, originally, we think from China, it was also a zoonotic disease, meaning that it's jumped the uh, species boundary somewhere on, you know, on some market uh, and uh, in southern China. That was, that's believed to be the case. And then traveled through the global cities network, um, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, Shanghai, uh, Beijing were affected, and but then also Toronto, which was one of the most affected. So Solly knew that I had done this work, and so we started sending back and forth some emails. And lately, uh, he contacted me and suggested we do something like this webinar, which uh, then takes it to the next step, not just doing research on uh, how these cities are affected, but also looking at how these cities as territories, as jurisdictions, as actors in a global governance framework can actually contribute to leading us out of uh, those pandemic situations. And, and we must also know, of course, the three of us have pointed that out in our contributions at the webinar yesterday, um, that no, we, after the pandemic means we're before the next pandemic. So this is now the moment not to drop our guards. This is now the moment where we have to collectively think about what institutions do we need, what processes do we need to be prepared better for the next pandemic, which is or the next mm -hmm. disaster of any kind, which is just around the corner. Sully, let me bring you in on that, and and I like the way Rogers framed it too, which is that you know disasters reveal a lot about life. They reveal a lot about cities. I'm curious too what we might say about metropolitan regions um, in this pandemic, what's being revealed as opposed to say in 1918, the last time the United States faced a major pandemic. Let's talk a little bit about some of those issues, what's being revealed about the metro regions at this time. I think that people should know 
that uh, when it comes to cities and pandemics, there are two opposing, opposing theories about that. One says that there's an urban health cost, namely we live together in close proximity to each other, makes us more vulnerable to pandemics. The other one says there's an urban health advantage because we live close together, we're more creative, we have better tools for dealing with pandemics and it should be an advantage. Now, the issue is what does the evidence tell us in terms of this particular pandemic? And this particular pandemic tells us some interesting stories. And I've tried to measure it looking at, you know, the, uh, the large metropolitan areas in the US and comparing them to smaller cities and rural counties. And what you find out is that clearly at the beginning of the pandemics, the large metropolitan areas pay a very high cost of being large and very connected. And uh, New York was the prime example of that. It got hit very hard. It's not only big and connected, but it's also like Roger was saying, it's also an international gateway with the largest number of passengers coming in. So what we're finding is number one, it's not density. It's not the fact that people are close together. It's just the large numbers of people because the number of people multiplies the number of connections. And the connections is what transmits the pandemic from one person to the other. So these large places are much more vulnerable uh, to the pandemic uh, in the initial stages. Now, as time goes by, the urban health advantage begins to show up. They have better hospitals, they have better governance, they have better tools for dealing with the pandemic. So what you saw in New York, for example, is an incredible, incredibly rapid decline of the death rate. I mean, the, the, the number of people who were infected and died at the beginning of the pandemic was enormous. And then very rapidly it declined. So the number of people who died today per case is a completely different story from what it was at the beginning of the pandemic. So the, the interesting thing to see is how these big cities uh, take the, a big hit uh, because there are, because of the interconnections between them, because all of these metropolitan areas, and I emphasize that, are single labor markets. I mean, there are millions of people that actually work everywhere and live everywhere. So they're connected. And it's these connections that make them vulnerable, but it's also these connections that make it make them so productive. So we're paying a high cost for this incredibly productive and inclusive economies that these large metropolitan areas provide. Shufei, let me bring you in now, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more, reflect on anything that Roger and Sally said, and then also tell us about the experience of the Wuhan metropolitan region from your research. Sure. Um, um, there are many theories, also speculations about why the virus originated in Wuhan. And I think connectivity is a big piece of the puzzle. Uh, if you look at the map of China, Wuhan is right in the middle of the country and the city is so well connected to other parts of the country. 
by um, airlines, but also high-speed rail and also expressways. Um, and that seafood market is right next to the train station. Um, so <laughs> um, so um, I think connectivity, um, like Saudi just commented, is a big uh, piece of the puzzle. Um, I was in China in January, and I didn't know anything about COVID until the Wuhan lockdown, um, January 23rd. Um, so that just shows how everybody in the country was kept in the dark for until the moment. I was even thinking of uh, going to Wuhan <laughs> to spend a few holidays, a few days uh, to for sightseeing without knowing there's a pandemic <laughs> happening. Yeah. So, um, so the most people didn't know what was going on, and then all of a sudden, the city announced the lockdown. So, for the entire metropolitan region, and then the lockdown was um, so strict; most people were not allowed to uh, even go outside their apartments. Um, so, the lockdown continued for two and a half months. It was lifted in early April, and by the time it's lifted. The, the epidemic, the outbreak was pretty much under control. There were very few cases. So basically the city succeeded in containing the outbreak in two and a half months. Very impressive compared to <laughs> the pace here in the US. Mm -hmm. um, so yesterday at our webinar, I gave a few examples of uh, what the city government did. Uh, lockdown was the first uh, very dramatic um, action. Um, and another quite effective uh, strategy was neighborhood-based surveillance. So basically the government sent uh, a lot of volunteers to call through the city and identify sick people. Um, and depending on the symptoms, these people were sorted into four different groups. Uh, people with severe symptoms were sent to major hospitals and those with mild symptoms were sent to uh, temporary shelters. And for the rest, uh, for the people who have been in contact with the infected, so they were sent to a quarantine shelters without any doctors on, <laughs> on duty. So it's a very effective system. And so that worked pretty well. Um, and then, after uh, the situation was under control, uh, the city rolled out an iPhone, not iPhone, a smartphone app. Um, it's a barcode so people can install in their phone. Um, um, so depending on what kind of what kind of information you put in the in the app, um, the color of the barcode will change uh, from green to red to yellow. So these are the three possible colors, and you can only go out if your barcode is green. Uh, green means no symptoms, mm -hmm. um, normal body temperature, and uh, you haven't been in contact with the uh, COVID sus suspects. Um, and then, so that has been working. It, the app is still being used, um, and you can't, people can't take public transportation without a green uh, barcode. Right. Um, and then in June, uh, the city uh, decided to test everybody. So in two weeks, they tested 11 million residents. 
lot of people didn't want to get tested because they know they don't have COVID. So why stand in line and <laughs> why bother? But if they don't have a test result, a good test result, they can't put that piece of information in their iPhone, in their phone app. The barcode will not turn green and then they can't go out. <laughs> so uh, so that's, that's why most people complied. They, they tested everybody and they found very few cases. So, um, and the city government covered the costs. So people didn't have to pay. The city paid um, a lot of money to uh, do, <laughs> to test everybody. Um, and some experts said, commented that it's not necessary because the infection rates were already very low, but it's really necessary for the government to restore public confidence, to show mm-hmm. you know, the city is, is fine, where the pandemic pandemic is over, so we can um, go back to normal. So that's, pro- um, that's pr- probably the symbolic side of uh, doing uh, uh, the mass test at the city scale. The, so, um, yeah. I just want to follow up on one part of that. I mean, the this tension which um, exists here, which you're, I think, describing very well, that the Wuhan government had the ability to take extraordinary steps, the lockdown, for example, or this testing that happened in June, um, which in a sense can be seen as a sort of a, I mean, that's a mass knowledge gathering exercise, right? Um, And on the, the flip side of it, there has been criticism that in the early period, in, in January, the government was not forthcoming about the nature of the concern. And so that the lockdown sort of came as a great surprise. So of course, I'm sure it came as a surprise within Wuhan, but also outside to the, to the rest of the world. So there's this tension around access to knowledge and surveillance, and, and it's a huge issue. But I wonder if you just give us a first pass of your thinking about it. Um, the order of uh, lockdown, situation was getting out of control and um, the local, the mayor was sacked. So the city officials were dismissed very quickly. And then the central government appointed new party secretary and important officials. And then the central government decided to lock down the entire city. So the local officials tried to cover up and uh, but they reached the point when they couldn't hide anymore and then uh, it went to the top and then the central government said oh, enough <laughs> we we need to do something drastic so that's uh, um, a, a short version of what happened in that initial period of the pandemic let me just remind folks you're listening to covid calls and we're talking about why pandemics such as COVID-19 require a metropolitan response with Zhufei Ren and Sally Angel and Roger Keel. Roger, let me bring you back in, thinking particularly about um, cities as they are now, global cities, metropolitan regions, and the kinds of challenges that you see exposed across, you know, as we're doing comparisons across different cities at this time, I'm thinking about the example of New York for, uh, or Philadelphia, where to really deal with the pandemic, you've had to deal with multiple state, county, and state jurisdictions. 
So we've got problems of, of government coordination, health systems, which may not be centralized. The health systems may stretch across, across multiple different jurisdictions. Sally mentioned the labor market, transportation. I mean, we can go on and on. I wonder if you could take one or two of those and elaborate a little bit more about what's being learned in the middle of this pandemic about those metro challenges. Yeah, let me introduce that by just commenting back quickly about what um, my two friends uh, said before me. And one of the things I want to point out, what Solly said about the health penalty in cities and and uh, that that's really something that we have learned to see differently in this pandemic for all the reasons that we have mentioned. And it's really important to 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 make that point. But I also I want to to comment on something that Shufei said, because in the beginning, in January, uh, February, when Wuhan went into lockdown, uh, people in the West said that this is impossible. Uh, it is completely impossible. Only the Chinese can do it. Uh, you know, this is a, it's out of the question in democratic countries, those things will not happen. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, we've all seen versions of Wuhan in uh, Madrid and in Milan and in London and in, in Toronto and in, in, in New York and Chicago. We have now gotten used to more drastic measures, uh, things that, and the state has apps too uh, in Canada and Germany and uh, all kinds of Western democracies. Uh, is maybe not as drastic as what Shufei has been talking about that happens in China, but we've all gotten used to different types of control, which of course has called uh, a lot of conspiracy theorists on the on uh, you know uh, out in the open, and we've heard all manner of weird theories about you know who's trying to control us here. Uh, some of that may be true, <laughs> some of it is complete nonsense, but it is it has flattened the world in that sense. And it is interesting to me to see, talk about democracy versus more authoritarian forms of governance is that uh, while the people in China have been sacked for their incompetence, uh, as Shufei uh, said, uh, that may or may not be justified, but it's kind of interesting, and I'm not gonna comment on the elections in your country, but it's kind of interesting that uh, very, very few politicians in democratic countries have had to pay the price so far for the incompetence of their governments. And if you look at the vast diversity of experience that we have been through in all these metropolitan regions uh, around the world, it is interesting to me to see how little political price has been paid hmm. for so many people sick, so many people dead, for those disparities that we have been talking about. So what we need to ask ourselves when we look at metropolitan governance, when we look at the role that metropolitan government can play in better preparedness and better accountability is how are we served by our democratic institutions? What is the accountability structure here? Who will pay the price, mm. political price, I mean? Uh, you know, who will be taken, who will have to take the responsibility when this is all over and what kinds of questions need to be asked. And I think we need to have a different metropolitan conversation. We need to look at metropolitan governments less in a ward-based uh, way, in a, a myopic uh, neighborhood-based way, way. We need to understand, as Shufei said very clearly, that we live in segregated cities. That we need to understand. We need to understand what divides us. But when we look at 
metropolitan governance coming out of this. And that is also true for how we deal with climate change and the huge disparities of racial capitalism and all this. We need to think differently about our democratic institutions. You know, what happens if things go as wrong as they have been going? And I talk from a city which should have been prepared better. Uh, we had SARS. We had many governmental reports uh, after 2003. We had recommendations for how to structure public health differently, how to create different uh, types of control uh, and, and um, order in, in hierarchical orders of emergency response and pandemic response. All of that was there, but still many of our institutions failed and there's very little accountability in the way we have been dealing with this. And I'm not blaming anybody here. I'm not putting any fingers, pointing any fingers at anybody, but we collectively have to think differently about how democracy has to be restructured. You know, who has not been in the room when these decisions were made to bring us into this mess? Who was the victims? Who were the victims of those uh, decisions that were made in the last uh, run-up to this particular pandemic? who had, didn't have a voice in this and who was structurally disempowered in those kinds of things. So let's talk about metropolitan governance, but let, let's talk about democratizing mm -hmm. this metropolitan governance uh, in a way that we haven't seen in previous disaster response uh, histories. Sally, I want to bring you in on this because um, the issues that Shufei and Roger are sketching out, really interesting ones, and particularly this issue around accountability. And I was um, expecting that on election day, the exit polls would indicate that the, the response or the poor response of the federal government would be reflected in the exit polls. And in fact, they weren't. It doesn't seem to have been among the top issues that people had in their mind when they voted for Joe Biden or for um, uh, for Donald Trump. Maybe we're going to see that when the next round of mayoral elections come up. I mean, I guess I want to sort of get you engaged in this discussion around accountability. Where will we see the blame uh, or not? It, I've been thinking about this, of course, like everyone else. I think that uh, we should at least be happy that it was enough to turn the tables and not give uh, Donald Trump another four years in office. Surely it was close, but it was good enough. So um, uh, the thing that I want to uh, point out, and uh, I don't think we're going to see a big change. I think that the US is divided and it's divided uh, along a number of lines that have very little to do with the management of the pandemic. So, I mean, just incompetence is just not enough to throw out the government because this government has been incompetent for so long that just being incompetent with one more thing is not going to make that much of a change. But I want to change the conversation a little bit to uh, continue what uh, Roger said about the metropolitan effects of mm -hmm. this 
from from the government perspective, and that is um, some of the metropolitan systems really got hit very hard, like the metropolitan transportation systems, the public transportation systems cannot and will not survive un unless they are, they are injected with funds that this government uh, refuses to, uh, to allocate. Uh, and I think that there, we're missing one important element here, uh, which is, I don't know, the way the stars are arranged for this pandemic, and that is that the world is flush with money with very little interest rate, right? So in a way, borrowing and spending uh, is the, the way to go. We should be spending a huge amount of money because there's no interest attached to this money. And we should be spending this money uh, to take care of the pandemic and to take care of these cities and states that are now suffering and cannot provide uh, the services. But what mm. we find is that uh, the kind of division that we have, this kind of rural-urban division that is very much you know, the center red country against the blue periphery that has uh, branded cities as uh, bastions of progressives and minorities which have not voted for the right party and should therefore not be helped uh, by the federal government. So that that political divide, um, as you pointed out, used to be uh, one we would think of as sort of strictly urban and rural, but now the metro the growth of metropolitan regions confuses that a little bit too, doesn't it? I mean, coming back to what we saw the election um, in Georgia and the expansion of Atlanta now to encompass what nine, ten counties are touched now. Yes, I think you're right. And I think that that uh, the suburbanization of minorities and um, Roger could uh, elaborate on that more than he did before uh, is confusing the picture. The the minorities are no longer isolated in islands of poverty, but are also there in the suburbs. Uh, the political map is changing, and yes, they are finding the the Republican Party is fighting. It's become a very reactionary one. It's trying to turn things back to make America great again before uh, America became a pluralist, multicultural, diverse society. It's going in this direction. But surprisingly, uh, the demographics are not really helping as much as they should because a lot of the uh, minorities, especially Latinos, I think, like the old melting pot theory. They like the idea of losing their diverse identities and becoming American without having a designation, an ethnic designation uh, uh, attached to them. So I think that, that the political map has been confused uh, and it's no longer, it's not uh, just kind of white against colored or white against mixed, but it's uh, it, the two different versions of America, you might say. The melting pot version and the diversity version.
And uh, right now it's half and half. So let's talk a little bit about um, what we think might be possible from a reform perspective going forward out of this pandemic. Jufe, I want to ask you first. I mean, we um, it's really interesting to have this conversation with the with the Wuhan example to bring put it on the table as a comparable. Um, my the experience of the United States is is very uneven in this regard. At certain times, disasters have been really provocative of major urban reforms. Uh, my own work in part of, was about fire in America in the 19th and early 20th century. So enormous changes to the way the built environment was governed out of those fires. In other cases, take Hurricane Katrina, um, they go back and rebuild the city as quickly as they can and they reinstate the same risks that were there before. So I think history is not as clear of a guide as some people might like it to be in terms of whether or not government urban government learns from disaster. What, are your, what do you see in Wuhan or, or in Chicago or anywhere else you want to talk about as possibilities for reform coming out of this moment? Um, well, definitely there are changes. Um, I, I'm, I'm talking about the Chinese context. Um, so Sully and Jose just talked about the urban-rural divide. But in China, that divide is even marked between cities and the countries. And one of the worst affected groups is migrant workers. Um, so a lot of them lost jobs. And after the pandemic was over, they came back to cities. But there are a lot of businesses and factories are closed. Or they don't hire anymore. So one of the ref um, ongoing reforms, uh, I don't know if I can call it reform or not. But um, one of the directions that uh, the central government in China wants to see is to keep migrant workers back home so they don't have to uh, rush to cities. Uh, so now the government is doing massive vocational training programs for migrant workers so they can find jobs in uh, their small towns. Um, so that's one example uh, I can think of. And in terms of uh, the healthcare system, I think China learned a big lesson uh, to uh, to change it. So so far, the healthcare system is too uh, centralized. Every city has just a few big hospitals, and when people catch cold, they go to one of the few big hospitals. There are no small clinics. There's no uh, people don't have family. Um, uh, physicians. So now one of the big pushes is to build more neighborhood level uh, clinics and um, medical facilities. So for the next uh, pandemic or epidemic, so people don't have to rush to just five hospitals for, for a city of 20 million people. So that's um, uh, one of the uh, changes in, the ter in terms of healthcare. That's a really interesting couple of examples. Roger, let me bring you in on that. Um, what kinds of reforms or changes do you think are possible or that maybe you're already tracking and seeing in terms of metropolitan government? Well, it's difficult to say the, the ones that uh, are there for everybody to see are the ones that we see in public space. Uh, the cities will not go back to what they used to be. Um, the the automobile oriented urban planning period is over 
uh, and that has huge effects on public health. People will not go back to having their streets choked by uh, unending traffic. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, in most of the, at least in the three cities that we're talking about, which we are, I mean, we have a bit of a problem. We're not um, summer cities, and all of us now have been experiencing what those cities are like. Uh, when the winter comes, uh, we've already had snow on the ground in Toronto, but uh, it was a festive uh, urbanism in the summer. You know, uh, there were no, you couldn't buy a bicycle uh, because they were all gone and there were thousands and thousands of families uh, out on the, the streets. Some of the streets were blocked along the lakeshore on Sundays. Uh, so that's this kind of uh, what I call the spatial grammar has changed in cities and that uh, will continue. People will have conversations about that. Uh, but I call this in, in a way the low-hanging fruit. Uh, this is the stuff that should have happened. Uh, we should have all been more like Amsterdam and Copenhagen for a long time. Uh, we haven't. I mean, we are in particularly flat cities, the three of us, uh, right? <laughs> you too, Scott. Yeah, uh, but sure. if you're not in mountainous uh, uh, San Francisco, uh, why do people not cycle more? I mean, you know, why do why not people, you know, why the streets not open to that sort of thing and create different kind of park spaces, create an openness to the public? So these th are things that will happen. Uh, but what, what, what I think what I'm more worried about uh, is that A, in sort of general uh, changes, we're not doing enough yet to do something about the structural inequities in our cities. It, I haven't seen many good ideas about how we can actually address those legacy problems that have led. Because people say the virus revealed the poverty, the virus revealed the segregation. Well, you know what? We are all urban researchers. We knew about the segregation. Right. We knew where to find it. We knew where there was racism. We knew where there was underfunding. It didn't take the virus to reveal that to us. We knew that before. So what are we going to do now about the fact that everybody seems to know where the hotspots are and where we need to do something? So in you know, rather than just thinking about bicycling uh, and opening up park space, we also need to think a little bit more about how we deal with inequities in the housing system, in the transportation system, and all those kinds of things. Specifically with regards to health, I want to offer an observation that I think is really interesting because uh, that I've made, uh, you know, because I've also been involved with my friend and colleague Harris Ali here at, at York on research on Ebola in West Africa. Um, you know, Shufei was talking about the way that how in Wuhan people went from door to door and through neighborhoods uh, and looked where sick people were and there was contact tracing and there were, you know, there was an effort to uh, to, to stifle community outbreaks. We don't have that under control in Toronto. But when you look to the West African experience that uh, the people in uh, Freetown and Monrovia and places where the Ebola virus struck so hard in 2014-15, the same communities, and these are dense informal settlements, uh, the, but they were organized socially in such a way, and that is part of what, what we mean by metropolitan governance. That was metropolitan governance from below. They were organized in such a way that when COVID was on the horizon, when they saw it coming, they remobilized those community structures again in a positive way so that they could keep much of the outbreak under control. If you look at the numbers 
in West Africa, in those countries that were affected, those numbers are fairly low compared to European countries or compared to North America. And we got to learn something from that. So when we now make these healthcare reforms, and I talk from a country with socialized medicine, which is much different from your country. Uh, so these are comparative cases. But when we now talk about healthcare reforms, Shufei mentioned the decentralization in China as a, you know, as a goal. In our case, we need to also, uh, you know, uh, equalize all these in, completely in, in unequal funding uh, patterns that exist in in Toronto as a metropolitan area. But we also need to strengthen the community-based um, uh, structures of healthcare, the ways that we can learn from other places in Brazil, in South Africa, or in West Africa, or in China, where people have made an effort to stifle those community outbreaks. That hasn't happened here. That should happen in the next uh, uh, pandemic uh, response strategy. Well, re remarkable um, synchronicity in what you're describing there, too, with what Zufei was talking about, the, the the need for um, decentralization to a certain degree. There are obvious advantages to centralization, but um, particularly in around community hospitals or healthcare access um, in a pandemic like this, you don't want people to have to centralize into just a few big hospitals. I, I wanna pick up the first part of what you were talking about, Roger, and bring it over and Sally, get your reaction on this. Um, and. Uh, and I appreciate your comment, Roger, that, because it is something that disaster researchers like myself say all the time, disasters reveal, disasters show, they shine a light. We have a million metaphors for this. But anybody who's aware of inequality, structural inequality doesn't need that light shown. So it's really the media um, and it's people maybe who don't pay attention to those inequalities. Maybe they don't live in cities um, or they're in Washington and they don't care about those inequalities. They're the ones who get shown that. And so. Solly, let me ask you about this because you mentioned transportation. It may be the case that the metropolitan transportation system, the metro in the nation's capital in the United States could stop serving on weekends. Cities and states don't have the luxury of running a debt in most states in the United States. I mean, we are potentially on the brink unless there's some real strong intervention of shutdown of services, the likelihood, the likes of which we have not seen in American cities in a long, long time. I'm really worried about that. That could be the grounds for reform. I guess if you're an optimist, if you're a pessimist or a realist, you might say that's just going to be urban hardship. Uh, I completely agree. And I uh, noted that at the beginning. I think that these public transportation systems uh, are the uh, the ultimate uh, victims of this pandemic. And uh, it, if we're not careful, they're going to go down. They're going to uh, reduce number of services. They're going to lose passengers. They're going to have to reduce them some more because they can't survive like that. And I want to add another threat, and that is uh, the... COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated our understanding of uh, how to work remotely. Uh, and that's very much against our interests of being together and working together. And I think, and, and I worry that companies, and I'm not talking about the public sector now, that companies are going to interpret that 
as okay look we don't need all these people in the uh, in in the city we can have them work from home they can work from a distance and uh, and they're going to reduce the demand for living in the central city a lot of people are saying yes i like to go to work but i i'm okay with going to work for three days a week or for two days a week i don't need to be there every day so most of the advantages i do i still want to interact with my colleagues the to you know the benefit of working together and uh what goes with interaction and creative interactions but i don't have to be there all the time so if the demand for travel goes down that's going to hurt these uh, systems even more and i think that we haven't yet heard uh, what companies are going to do and i think mm -hmm. that they are also the boardrooms of companies are now uh, i'm sure discussing uh, how they can reduce their labor costs by not having to pay such high pri uh, housing prices for people in the city and could people continue to work from home and that is uh, going to create permanent damage uh, to our cities. Well, we're almost up on time here. Uh, just want to uh, remind everybody that um, we've been talking about this issue of how pandemics such as COVID-19 require a metropolitan response on COVID calls. Um, and I want to, I should have said this at the top, but you've all been incredibly um, prolific during this time and um, published books even this year. Xu Fei has this book, Governing the Urban in China and India, which appeared um, this year. And I think, Roger, you have a book out this, this year as well, um, or all of you are publishing a lot. So just with that, this is a final word as we go around this collaboration that you're engaged in right now. Where's this? Is this headed? Are you bringing more more cities into this analysis, and so that we can actually um, draw something out of this pandemic experience and really learn something about global urbanism? What form will the collaboration continue to take? Let's just do a quick round for each of us as we conclude. Roger, can I start with you on that? Yeah, thanks. I just want to quickly also go back to when we talk about what Sully said about what potentially corporations are thinking about to doing their buildings and all that with their workforce. Let's not forget that we are working for universities that have that same questions on their mind. And, you know, there's a very important question how universities, educational institutions will continue as urban institutions per se. Some of the oldest institutions in cities are universities. And we need to think about what that means uh, in the future as we're all teaching online. Um, I, I uh, wanted to say that yesterday we had Paris and Johannesburg also on the call. Uh, these people are asleep now, which is why we're having this conversation with you. Um, and But it was a very fruitful, fertile conversation. And I hope we can continue that with these particular people. I know that our colleague in Johannesburg is already talking to other people in the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Uh, there's an active conversation going on in the global south uh, amongst urban and metropolitan regions, thinking collectively about how that is. We had a representative yesterday of the C40 organization of cities with us. So that is already going on. It's a very important global conversation that we need to strengthen right. that. We're doing research along these same lines. I'm doing research with people in Milan in Berlin, and of course, also Toronto. 
So that is something that we need to collectively do more. And the three of us, you know, I'm glad to see the two of them again, the second day in a row. Uh, we are continuing to think collectively about those kinds of questions. Sounds like you need Philadelphia in that mix. Sally, a final Here we word. Go. Invitation. <laughs> what about you, Sally? Final yeah, word on this? Final word. I th think that uh, what we're starting to do is prepare for the next pandemic and try to draw the lessons from this pandemic for the next one. We weren't prepared for this one. And uh, in pre preparing for the pandemic, uh, we have to articulate a role for metropolitan areas that they don't have now, that they need, but they don't have now. In the US, there is no metropolitan organization of any kind that could take care of uh, health issues. We need at least uh, information systems that work at the metropolitan scale. The, the hospital system has to work at the metropolitan scale because there are not enough beds in municipalities to take care of the municipality, but there are enough at the metropolitan scale. So these things will now start to happen. And I think that what we've learned from this pandemic is when some part of the government doesn't do anything, other parts of government pick it up. So I think that that is one of the best lessons from this pandemic. And that is uh, the initiatives can come from everywhere and when there's somebody with that can provide leadership people are so hungry for that kind of leadership that they let them lead and i think that that is one of the best lessons that we learned from this pandemic shufa congrats on the book and on this collaboration final words from you well i haven't been very productive since <laughs> since January. Uh, the book took me 10 years to write, so that's a very long time. Um, um, and the book is about yeah. So right now, on a few shorter and more manageable projects on the pandemic and specifically comparing how China and India handle uh, the, uh, the crisis. And from time to time, I get an email from Jose asking me to talk about like a different city. <laughs> So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity, such as yesterday. You know, I didn't actually know much about Wuhan in terms of the recent development. So I think Jose and also Sally should keep sending people emails and organizing <laughs> more webinars so we can participate and learn from each other. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls. You can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. And this week has been a great week, and I'm really glad to close it out with my guests, Shufei Ren, Roger Keel, and Sally Angel. And earlier this week, people who listened all week, we had I had Keith Mueller from the University of Iowa, and we talked about COVID-19 in rural America. So to have that conversation bookended by this conversation this week for me has really been um, important and a lot of learning. I want to thank my guests for coming on today. Thank you, Scott, for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank Very thank exciting. You. You're welcome. And I hope we get a chance to, to speak again about this important research. And I want everybody to stay healthy. And we'll join you again on Monday, 5 p.m.